Good morning, church. Okay, I thought we'd be a little more excited than that, but that's okay. We're going to be all right. We're going to make it. Hey, if you have your Bible, go ahead, take it out, open it up, head over to Matthew chapter 2. Um, we'll be picking up right where Piper left off here in just uh, a few minutes. Uh, but as you're headed over to Matthew chapter 2, I want to let you know just a few things coming this way. First of all, if you are our guest today, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, here at Houston Northwest, we believe that our job is to make Houston more like heaven by helping Houstonians become more like Jesus. So we want to help you become more like Jesus. We want to help you take whatever your next spiritual step might be. And so if you're here today, you are welcome. If you're joining us online, you're welcome. And we want to encourage you to let us help you take whatever your next spiritual step might be by letting us know that you're here. So there's a card in the seat pocket in front of you that says connect. You can pull that out, fill that out, drop it in the offering basket whenever our service concludes today. Uh, there's also a digital version of that card that you can access by scanning the QR code on the back of the seat. If you're joining us online, there'll be a link that'll appear in the chat and you can just click that It'll take you to a digital version of that card. If you'll let us know that you're here, we're not going to spam you or anything like that. We just want to get information so that we can help you do whatever the next spiritual step is that God has placed on your heart as we try to make our city more like heaven. Uh, next thing I want to let you know, uh, as I mentioned, we're in Advent, counting down to Christmas. Christmas Eve services are right around the corner. Now, we are going to have four identical services this year. Those services will be on December 23rd and December 24th. December 23rd, 5 and 7 p.m. December 24th, 5 and 7 p.m. The only difference will be that weather permitting, December 23rd, we will be outside on the lawn, and December 24th, we'll be inside in here. So on December 23rd, we'll have uh, an interactive nativity for the kids outside, and then we'll have all kinds of activities. We'll have those same activities minus the interactive nativity at the indoor services on the 24th. Hope that you'll pick the service that makes the most sense for you and for your family and want you to be here. Now, we're hoping that you will grab a stack of Christmas Eve invites the truth of the matter is, is that Christmas is a time of the year when people are open to being invited to church, and we hope that you will take time to invite folks to come and to join us for one of these services so they can hear about the love that God has for them and the life that he wants them to experience in Jesus. So hope that you'll grab a stack of invites on your way out today and give those to pretty much anybody in your life so that they can know about our Christmas Eve services. As you're uh, headed over to Matthew 2, let me just give a, a brief introduction to the Bible for those of us who might be new to the Bible. So the Bible is divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we read about God's chosen people, Israel, and how they're waiting for a rescuer, a redeemer. They use the word Messiah. And then in the New Testament, we find out who that rescuer, redeemer, Messiah is. We find out that his name is Jesus. We find out that he's not just a prophet or a teacher, but that Jesus is in fact God in flesh, God's very son. We find out that he's born of a virgin, that he lives a sinless human life, that he dies a death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and that then he conquers death by coming back from the dead three days later where he ascends to the right hand of the Father to rule and reign as king even today. The Bible tells us that he gave his followers his spirit so that then they could live in power. Now, his earliest followers were so encouraged by this that they went and told everyone who would listen about the great truth of this Jesus. And so the people who heard that truth and believed became followers of Jesus and his way. The good news is, is that those of us in the room today are still following the same gospel message, the same good news. And you can do so today 
as well. In fact, if you've, not, if you've yet to place your faith in Jesus today, you can place your faith in him knowing that he will forgive you of your sin, that he will give you the promise of eternal life, and he will give you the power to live a life of meaning and purpose in following his way here and now. So I want to encourage you to consider that as we jump into Matthew 2 today. Matthew was one of the earliest followers of Jesus. He wrote a biography of Jesus called the Gospel of Matthew. So today we're going to be in Matthew 2, and we're going to read the entire chapter, all right? So you're going to just have to dig in and get ready, but it's going to be a lot of fun as we uh, get here into our, uh, our passage today. I'm going to pray over us, and then we're going to jump in and read Matthew chapter 2. So let's bow together in prayer and ask God to bless our time together. Father, we believe that you still work. Kids have sung today. It was super cute. Uh, we're, we're feeling good about that. But today, Lord, many of us just need to know that you want to bring us into your family, that you haven't forgotten us and that you see us. And so, Lord, I pray that, that we would experience that today. God, somehow as I preach, do a miracle in hearts. And just do something that's unexpected. And we pray this, Lord, and we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary and his father. And falling to their knees, they worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem, who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. 
because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I know it's Christmas, but today we're actually going to go on an Easter egg hunt. So, um, you probably already are aware that in movies and video games, that sort of thing, often creators, directors will hide something that is popularly known as an Easter egg. And if you're a fan of the particular work, then you may be able to pick up these sort of hidden clues and little secrets that are tucked away. So, you guys already know this. If you've been around for a while, massive geek here, and I'm a big fan of Star Wars. Now, the creator of Star Wars, George Lucas, also made one of my all-time favorite movies, and that is Raiders of the Lost Ark. In, in the first service, whenever I said Raiders of the Lost Ark, I literally had some people say amen. I thought that was kind of amazing. All right, so Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, you may or may not know this, but there's a cool little Easter egg hidden in Raiders of the Lost Ark in the scene where Indiana Jones uh, goes to find the Ark of the Covenant. And while he's there about to, to get the Ark, there's kind of a post behind Harrison Ford's character, Indiana Jones, and there's some hieroglyphics that are inscribed in there. And if you look closely, you will see that one of the hieroglyphics is actually... C-3PO and R2-D2. Yeah, so the creator of George Lucas just kind of had a little cheeky moment and decided that he would hide one of his own creations in another one of his movies. So, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away indeed. All right, now, I bring that up because as we read Matthew chapter 2, there are Easter eggs hidden throughout this passage. But in the same way, if you're not a fan of Star Wars, you may miss the Easter egg and Raiders of the Lost Ark. If you're not familiar with the background story with the Old Testament, you may miss some of the Easter eggs that are hidden in Matthew chapter 2. But Matthew, as he's writing this, is trying to wave his arms and say, look at what our God has done. In fact, Matthew chapter 2, I think we could really make the case is Matthew contrasting the kingdom of Herod with the kingdom of God. And so if you look at Matthew 2, you'll see all of these ways that King Herod, the kingdom of Herod behaves, and then you'll see the kingdom of God. In fact, I don't think it would be too much of a jump for us to recognize that in Matthew 2, we're actually comparing the kingdom of the world with the kingdom of of God. So let's jump into Matthew 2 and see what we can find here. Now, as I've already mentioned, this is the third Sunday of Advent, Advent Joy. So we're just going to have a lot of fun, find some joy in hunting for Easter eggs as we look at joy in the kingdom of God. So the first place that we find joy in Matthew 2, I think, in the kingdom of God is in His, in God's surprising mercy, in God's surprising mercy. In verse 1, we read that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, and wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So who are these wise men? This is actually the very first Easter egg that we find in this passage. Now, the Greek word there, the word magi, is the same root word that we have for the word magician. It's the same description given to Simon in the book of Acts. But these guys don't appear to be magicians in the traditional sense that we would understand it. Instead, they appear to be astrologers because they're studying the stars in the sky looking for a sign from God. 
But these magicians, these magi, these wise men, whoever they were, that's really the big question. Now, there's been all kinds of theories about them. I don't think that we know exactly, but here's a couple of things. A lot of scholars over the years have postulated that there has to be some sort of connection between the magi and Daniel. Now, why is that? 587 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar comes riding in and destroys Jerusalem and carries off all of the Israelites into exile into Babylon. Now, we know that Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and then others as well, chose to be faithful to God in the midst of exile. In fact, if you go read Jeremiah 29 later on today, you can see how God instructed the people of God to be faithful while they were in exile in Babylon. So, they're faithful and follow God, even though they're under the rule of another king who has other gods. As they decide to be faithful, we don't know exactly what happened, but probably, we think, that Daniel left behind maybe scrolls or writings or maybe even taught that in some way God would make himself known again. Now, some people have theorized that the Magi are actually Jews who stayed behind. I don't think that's the case and this is why. Because the text doesn't tell us that's who they are. And I think that if this was um, the people of God, Jewish people coming back from Babylon, I think that the Bible would be explicit in that. Instead, I think that what has happened is that Daniel or his friends or someone left behind the idea to keep looking for a sign from God and then God in his great mercy decided to reveal himself to people who did not worship him in the same way that the Jews did. Now, this is where I'm talking about the big mercy of God. Some people have theorized that these men came from Persia, modern-day Iran, and that they were followers of Zoroaster, which is sort of the, the, the ancient religion of Zoroastrianism. And as they come in, they are looking to the sky, looking for a sign from the one God, but they don't understand exactly what the truth is about this one God. I want you to think about this, that your God would be so merciful and so great that he would choose to give a sign of his coming to people who don't currently follow him. I mean, you've probably heard stories of people of other faiths getting visions of Jesus of God choosing to just be gracious by showing his presence in their lives. And I think, wouldn't it be just like our God to announce his arrival, not only to the people who were right there in Israel, but to even bring in people, pagans, so to speak, from other parts of the world to say, I want you to be brought into my family as well. I love this. I think it's so beautiful because it reminds me of the fact that God's always been doing this. If you go back and look at the life of Abraham, as we talked about last week, Abraham, according to Kings, was at one point an idol worshiper, and then God used him to be the very founder of the covenant promises that God gives. This is how our God works. His mercy is so great that he's always working to bring people in from the outside and to say, I want these people. My, my mercy is for all people. You know, we, we live in Houston. We live in what Kinder Institute at Rice University has deemed to be the most ethnically diverse city in the United States. And religions from all over the world are here. What would it look like for us to have the same heart for them that God had 2,000 years ago as he put a star in the sky that would lead people from another land and another faith straight to the house of Jesus? Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Sikhs, 
Hindus? What would it look like for us to say, how, how could we love you in such a way that you too would want to come and to worship this king? Rich Viotis, who's a pastor in New York City, said something that really stuck with me, and I think that it's, it's interesting. He said, I've always found it to be a curious evangelism strategy to despise the people you're supposed to convert. And I think a lot of us have been convinced that we're supposed to hate people of other religions rather than love them into the kingdom the way that God did. He literally put a star in the sky to try to bring some people in so they could discover the truth. Now, contrast that with the kingdom of Herod. Did you notice that Herod brings in the chief priests and the scribes? And did you notice that the chief priests and the scribes, the people on the inside, the people who know the scriptures, he says, okay, let's study the scriptures and where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they say, oh, well, Bethlehem. But whenever it's time to go to Bethlehem, which by the way, is not that far from Jerusalem, they don't go. They're so concerned with believing that God would tell them the truth maybe even so concerned with being pure and being separate from those other groups, that other religion, that they're not going to make the trip to see what they have apparently been waiting on for hundreds and hundreds of years, which is the gift of the Messiah. The thing that they've been waiting for is literally just right over there, but because some people who are part of another religion and are foreigners are going to come, then they're not going to go. Isn't it funny how God's great mercy is so big that it sometimes baffles people who are religious? May we have mercy in our hearts that matches the mercy of God. So the kingdom of God, big mercy, but sometimes the kingdom of the world and Herod, not so much. The second thing that I think shows us the joy of the kingdom of God in this passage is God's surprising obscurity. Surprising obscurity. Now, this is kind of interesting. The next Easter egg is actually this incident that we just talked about. The wise men show up. Now, if you're from a foreign country, you're following a star, and uh, there's all kinds of interesting things out there about the star. I don't have time to get into that today, but you should really check that out. But the Magi are following the star, and they get into Israel. Well, they know where they're supposed to go, right? Because if you're going to find the king of the Jews, where would you go to find a king? You would go to the capital, to the palace. That's where you would obviously go. So they go to Jerusalem. They go to meet with King Herod because if the king of the Jews has been born, then guess what? It's got to be the son of the current king. And so they go, they talk to Herod. They say, hey, we're here to see your son, to find this new king. And Herod's like, I didn't have a kid. Now, this causes some interesting things, right? Because as we read that King Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem along with him. Um, you know, you remember that phrase, uh, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Okay, it's even worse if you have a tyrannical king, right? Because if he's not happy, he's going to break into violent outbursts and fits. And let me tell you what, we'll get into that in a second, but you kind of get the point. So they have shown up in Jerusalem, the palace, the impressive guards, the opulence, and there's no king. They break out the scrolls, and where is the king supposed to be born? Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem literally means house of bread, but if you heard this in the ancient days, you would know that's an Easter egg because another important story took place in Bethlehem, the story of Ruth. Now, you may not be familiar with the story of Ruth. Let me just give you a very quick summary. Ruth was a foreign woman from the, from the region of Moab. 
And her husband died, and she ended up going with her mother-in-law, Naomi, into Israel and marrying a man named Boaz, who was a member of the family of God, and ended up having a child named Obed, who had a child named Jesse, who had a child named David, King David. What's the point? Here it is, is that God brought someone who was a poor foreigner widow and put her into the lineage of Jesus. Now, I mention this because the hearers immediately would understand God's kingdom is not a kingdom that is obsessed with pomp and circumstance and power, but God's kingdom is one that moves to find the people who often feel overlooked, unseen, and obscure. Whenever I was a kid, I was really into politics. I was a lot of fun at parties, as you can imagine, right? Okay. And I, like, I was so into it. Like, I had this T-shirt. I'll never forget. I wore this T-shirt, like, all the time. It said, this is your brain, and it had a picture of an elephant on the front. On the back, it said, this is your brain on drugs. It had a picture of a donkey on the back. Like, I was like, yeah, you're like, wow, you were that guy. Yeah, I was. I know. That's, what, that's who I was. Now, I mention this. I mention this because whenever I uh, had the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. for the first time, I mean, I was just like, you know, blown away. There's the Capitol, there's the Washington Monument, there's the mall, you know, you just see all these things, the White House, you're just impressed with it, and the grandeur, and, and the power. As I've learned, though, over the years about the way that God operates, and what he teaches in the Bible, I've begun to recognize that God is never moving in the ways that we think he will work. He's always moving in the little backwater, surprising places, and using unexpected people who look like they have no power to demonstrate his power. I'm good friends with a guy named Joel Rainey. Joel's a pastor in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And the distinction that Shepherdstown, West Virginia has, according to Joel, is that they are, quote unquote, just outside the blast radius of Washington, D.C. So what does that mean? Well, you can kind of figure that out. But here's the point, is that if the United States ever undergoes nuclear attack, the capital of the United States is supposed to temporarily move to Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Now, if you saw Shepherdstown, West Virginia, you would then understand what it would mean to show up in Bethlehem. Because, I mean, there ain't nothing in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And God says, I want a town like Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and that will be the seat of my kingdom, not Jerusalem. When you think about Ruth... A foreign woman, poor, widowed, down on her luck. And I want you to think of the foreign women who are poor that you walk by day by day and don't even think twice about. And I want you to think God uses these people to show us his heart and character and to usher in his kingdom. This is who God chooses I want you to think of Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and think, my God picks these places to do great moves. One of the greatest revivals of the last century happened off the coast of Scotland in a set of islands known as the Hebrides. Nobody knows about it, but God moved in a powerful way in that place. I share this with you. Because if you're here today and you feel hidden or obscure or overlooked or unimportant, this is what I want you to know. You're exactly the sort of person that God sees and wants to bring into his family. Because whereas the kingdom of Herod 
is obsessed with power and prestige. Our God sees those who are in the margins and welcomes them in. Pearl Buck famously said, the test of a civilization is the way it cares for its helpless members. And the kingdom of God always cares about the helpless. The next Easter egg that I notice in this passage is in verse 11. Verse 11, it says, Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then, then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, you may have noticed right there before that in verse 10 that when they saw the star, in other words, they saw the star had stopped over the manger, it says they were overwhelmed with joy. Now, can you imagine the Magi have traveled who knows how many miles for how many days, months, years, who knows, and finally they get to the place that they have been waiting. You know that along the way they had to wonder, is this crazy? Should we be doing this? Is this bananas? And then they show up and we, we found it and we found the child and this joy just comes over them. And so the wise men come in and we find joy in this next thing, which is this, the grand scope of God. In God's grand scope. So the wise men come in and they, they present these gifts. Now, over the years, you may have heard some, uh, some different factoids about the gifts. You know, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You might be like, oh, yeah, I heard they're in Exodus chapter 30, and it's a kind of a foretelling of the future temple. Or maybe you've heard that the gifts were so valuable that they were uh, valuable enough that uh, all of Joseph and Mary and Jesus' trip into Egypt and back would be paid for. Some people have even theorized that the gifts were so valuable that the reason that Jesus never really had to work was because he was able to support himself off of the worth of these gifts. And I, I don't know if that's the case, but here's the thing. I want you to hear. The gifts are cool, but what's even more interesting is the Easter egg that's hidden here in this verse. Several scholars have pointed out that this seems to be a kind of a linguistic hand-waving by Matthew to say, hey, everybody, look here. This is a reference back to 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 10. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 10, another foreign dignitary comes and brings gifts to another king. And that was when the queen of Sheba, sometimes known as the queen from the south, comes and brings gifts that sound a lot like gold, frankincense, and myrrh and lays them at the feet of King Solomon. Now, if you know anything about Israel, you know that Israel was at the height of its power under King Solomon. Its borders were the largest that it ever was, had more power, had more, more influence. In fact, the Bible tells us that whenever the queen of Sheba saw everything that Solomon had, the Bible says there was no breath left in her. She was breathless, in other words, at everything that Solomon had. And what the Bible is saying and what Matthew seems to be saying to say, hey, this is like whenever the queen of Sheba came and presented gifts to Solomon, except this kingdom will be even bigger and grander than Solomon ever could have imagined. So the king who got to build the temple couldn't touch the grandeur that would happen through the kingdom of God. Now, this is incredible. I want you to think about this. A couple that's obscure, doesn't really have any money, doesn't have any power. The child isn't in the palace. He was born in a manger. They show up, and Matthew is saying this kid will rule a kingdom that will be bigger than Israel at the height of her power. 
this week, Time Magazine released uh, their Person of the Year and Heroes of the Year. I don't know if you saw this or not, but the Person of the Year was President Zelensky from Ukraine, and the Heroes of the Year were the women of Iran for refusing to wear the hijab and uh, protesting against the, the government in Iran. Now, both of these, Zelensky and the women of Iran, have something in common. They stood up to a foe that was supposedly more powerful and yet prevailed. Now, I mention this because I think that our knee-jerk reaction would be to think the kingdom of God with a baby in an obscure town could never overcome the kingdom of Herod. That would be where we would start. But it turns out that that's actually not the case. You know, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a woman who brought a measure of yeast and put it in the dough and worked it until the yeast had gone all the way through the dough. You don't really notice that the yeast is working or that the yeast is making its way through the dough. It just sort of happens over time. Here's the thing. The kingdom of God may not have the impression that it's powerful. It may look weak, but behind the scenes, it is spreading and moving and invading in hearts. Interestingly enough, they say that right now the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran. Nobody knows that, right? It's supposed to be a Muslim-majority country, but that's where they say the church is growing the fastest. I mention this because the scope of the kingdom of God that started in a manger 2,000 years ago is far more powerful than anything that Herod could ever even imagine, more than Solomon ever could have imagined. And so that's the Easter egg that's hidden there, and I, I love this. As great as Israel once was, the kingdom of God will be greater. The glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters do the seas. And then finally, another Easter egg in this passage is found in his supernatural power, God's power. You see, the, probably the most startling difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Herod is that Herod is always using might, right? Whenever he wants to have his way, what does he do? He goes and he decides that he's going to kill all of the boys in and around Bethlehem, two years old and younger. I mean, now I want you to think about the power of the world in that moment, the kingdom of the world. When they feel threatened, what do they do? They are merciless, they are violent. They will hold the sword without hesitation. The kingdom of God, they, they don't seem to have any weapons in this place. I mean, how are they ever going to win? And the answer is dreams? Yeah. Four times in Matthew 2, God uses dreams to speak to people. Once to the wise men specifically, telling them to go home by a different route. And then three times to Joseph. There's your Easter egg right there. Can you think of another person in the Old Testament who God spoke to regularly through dreams? Ah, yes. And what was his name? Also Joseph. And the original Joseph, what did he do? He moved the people of God into Egypt, and eventually they came back out and into the promised land. What does this Joseph do? He goes with the Son of God into Egypt, and then eventually leads him back out of Egypt. It's as if Matthew is waving his hand saying, God kept his promises then, and God will keep his promises now, and our God cannot be stopped because our God has the advantage of miracles. See, here's the thing is that it's tempting to believe that our God isn't strong enough because our God doesn't have an F-16, 
But the truth of the matter is that God always subverts the powers of the world by doing things in inexplicable ways. This isn't necessarily an Easter egg, but if you go back to Daniel 2, chapter 11, Nebuchadnezzar is asking his wise men to interpret his dreams, and they say, we can't do that because you would need power from the gods. And this is what they say, the gods don't live with people. But what if they do? What if God becomes flesh and moves into the neighborhood in a manger in an obscure place, and invites everyone to be part of the kingdom. What if that is exactly what our God does? The beauty of this enterprise is that a man and a woman on the run with an infant somehow outsmart the most powerful person in the region, not because of any resources they have, but simply because God speaks to them in a dream. And the thing that I want you to hear is that God is showing you that the way of the world will always be violence and might and attempting to crush a rebellion, whereas at the same time, he will always find a way to persevere. It may be through a dream, it may be through a miracle, it may be through prayer, but our God is not constrained by the ways of the world. So speaking of power, I think there's maybe one other kind of semi-Easter egg hidden at the very beginning. The wise men show up calling Jesus the king of the Jews. And Matthew, at the end of this biography that he wrote, would mention the fact that as Jesus was crucified, they put a sign over his head that says the king of the Jews. And from the very beginning, there have been people that have said, there's no way that he could be the king of the Jews. Because how could the king of the Jews, how could God's son be crucified? In fact, if you go read in John's gospel, they wanted Pilate to put on the sign. Don't let the sign say this was the king of the Jews, but instead he said he was the king of the Jews. But the sign said the king of the Jews. Now I want you to think of this, that God would allow his son to be humiliated, publicly executed in excruciating pain and embarrassed with a sign over his head that says this is the king of the Jews unless it's exactly how God works. What if it's not embarrassing at all? What if it is precisely what our God does? The world thinks that power comes through battalions and swords, but God says that power comes through crosses and wash basins. And even then, people were saying, I don't believe that he's the king of the Jews, so put on the sign that he said he was the king of the Jews. And here's the thing. Really, the last Easter egg that we're on the hunt for today is the Easter egg in your heart and mind. Because in the same way that these kings showed up and said, we're looking for the king of the Jews, today you have to decide, do you actually think that Jesus is the king? You see, these guys, as we read in Matthew 2, when they found him, their hearts were filled with joy because they had finally found what they were looking for. Some of us today have been looking for a long time for meaning and purpose, We've been looking for someone that would actually, truly, unconditionally love us, that we could find significance and satisfaction. And God provides all of these things through his son, Jesus. You will not find them in money or in fame, in achievement, in relationships. You won't find them anywhere else. You will only find them ultimately and completely in Jesus Christ. He's the only true source of joy. 
It's a joy that sustains you in the midst of dark circumstances because it's not a circumstance-based happiness. It's instead a joy that is eternal and springs straight from the heart of God. And this God lets you choose today if you believe that Jesus is the king or not. So here's the thing. You have to decide. Do I think that a king that brings in people who aren't religious in the way that I think they are is truly God? Do I really believe that a king who isn't impressed with flash and substance, but instead moves in the weak and the obscure truly is God? Do I think that a God who would kind of move in a hidden way is really God? Do I think that a God who prefers the supernatural powers of dreams and miracles and prayers over violence and weapons is truly God? Or do I prefer the ways of the world? And you pick. And today you get to pick who your king is. But if you pick King Jesus, you get a new way of life. And if you pick the way of the world, well, you can keep living the thing that you've already seen. C.S. Lewis famously said that either Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or a Lord. He also famously said that either this is something that is not important at all or that it is the most important thing that has ever happened. So I suppose today the question is, what will you do with the assertion that Jesus is the king? My hope is, is that you will choose to believe that he is the king and make him the king of your life today. That you'll ask him to forgive you of your sin that you'll receive the gift of eternal life and you'll live today the life that he taught through his power. And if you do, I'm here to tell you, you can enter in to his joy. That's the greatest gift I could give you on this third Sunday of Advent. Let's pray. Father, For those who are here today who, for whatever reason, don't know about the power and the beauty of your son, I ask that you would speak to them and that you would draw them right now to you. We we haven't spent a ton of time today talking about application. What we've been talking about, Lord, is just your character, that you're a God who sees the hidden and the weak, that you're a God who wants to bring in the outsider. I, I think even right now, of the words in the dream to Joseph, get up, and that you gave those same words to Jonah, to get up, and to go and to preach to Nineveh. Even then, your heart was for the outsider. Lord, let us see that you're a God who wants to bring everybody in. So, Father, today, the people who think, well, I'm not good enough. I got to clean my life up, and then I can come. Lord, let them know, nope, you want them right now, broken and messed up. God, for the people who think that they're not religious enough. Let them know that you receive them. God, just show your heart today. And as they see your character in your heart, Lord, and I, I ask, God, would you, would you please just draw them to you that they would say yes. And God, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So glad that you joined us online today at Houston Northwest Church, where our vision is to make Houston more like heaven by helping Houstonians become more like Jesus. 
If you have questions about following Jesus or would like to talk to someone about next steps in your spiritual journey, text Jesus to 281-946-6500. Connect with us throughout the week by following us on social and enjoy a great day.